at the 2009 Annual American Atheists Conference, the philosopher Daniel Dennett gave a 45-minute lecture that has since become somewhat notorious. The title of the lecture was The Evolution of Confusion. So, so the thing that it is famous for, and the reason I went to it uh, this, this week because of the uh, a tangent in today's show, is the coining of this peculiar term that Dennett introduces. The, the term is deepity. D-E-E-P-I-T-Y. And as he says, it was, it was actually uh, coined by the daughter of a colleague in the philosophy department who was a, a, a teenage girl who teased her philosophy professor father by saying, oh, dad said a deepity. And uh, Dennett seized on this term and he, he gave it a sort of a, a more precise definition that has since stuck. So Dennett's definition of deepity is a, a particular kind of pseudo-profundity. So he, he uses this term to mean a statement that has two distinct interpretations. One interpretation is uh, obviously true, but trivial in consequences. And the other interpretation is not true. But if it were true, the implications would be earth-shattering. So the, um, the example he gives in, in his lecture is, love is just a word. And you know, as he, as he breaks down, quite obviously, the thing we call love very clearly is much more than just a word. However, there is also a word in English, L-O-V-E, that is <laughs> that is pronounced love. And so in, in some sense, yes, love is just a word, but only in the same sense in which mackerel is just a word. But in the other sense, no, I mean, if real love were nothing more than a word, that would be, that would really change our understanding of the thing. But of course, that's just not really true. And it is the ambiguity between these two interpretations that gives a deepity its rhetorical force. Because the reason Dennett bothers to coin this term, the reason he bothers to give this lecture, is to confront what he identifies as the proliferation of deepities in certain, certain public fields, in pop psychology, in theology, as he says, in uh, Hallmark cards in eulogies, among other places. And he says that uh, deepities are, are initially convincing, and yet they end up creating more confusion rather than more understanding. And if anything, they shut down further inquiry. Another example he gives, he quotes the religious historian Karen Armstrong as saying, God is no being at all. And he says, of course, well, well this is this seems sophisticated because it seems to dodge a, a, a specific question about whether or not God exists. But, uh, but then, of course, it, 
if taken literally, it means uh, nothing different than if you were to say no being at all is God. So he, he spends a lot of time on this. Again, it is a uh, conference of American atheists. It is for that reason also, among other things, a little smug at times, a little bit insufferable, and certainly the crowd and the crowd's reactions are pretty irritating, uh, especially if you listen to it today. But, you know, it is a it is a an interesting sort of curious little linguistic uh, pitch that he offers and a, a, I think, a pretty catchy term. So that's why I went to it, because of a topic I'm going to get to a little bit later in this episode. But what surprised me when I went back and actually listened to the whole lecture, what surprised me, because I had heard it a couple of years ago, uh, but I'd forgotten the premise of the lecture. I'd forgotten the whole beginning, the whole first half, the whole first two-thirds, the whole reason he's bothering to get to deepities at all. And the, the, the larger context for the lecture is a study that Dennett has been working on, has collaborated with some other scholars in putting together. And, and the study is a long-term highly confidential series of questionnaires and interviews with preachers, ministers, priests who are living in the closet. In the closet, not in the sense that they're secretly gay, but in the sense that they are secretly atheists. And this is where, uh, despite some of the, the bile and uh, bad sportsmanship <laughs> evident in the room, uh, which, which also includes, among others, the always uh, dour and spiteful Richard Dawkins, <laughs> uh, despite all of that, the, this portion of the lecture I actually find pretty moving because Dennett does seem to have some real compassion for these people he's, he's studying. Now, these are people who felt a calling early on. They, uh, they gave their lives to the faith. In, in most cases, they went to school for many years to study scripture, to study theology. They built a life in the church. They, they, they gave all of their skill, all of their, uh, all of their gifts, all of their time, all of their family, their social, their social community, all of that is rooted in the church. It's rooted in this faith. And what is pretty poignant about his account is, is that these are people who sometime well after finishing their training, well after becoming ordained, well after, you know, in most cases having, uh, I think there, there were five men and one woman, but having married, having had children, having really built a, and lived out much of their lives in this position of leadership in a church community, they lost their faith. That is, they came to understand that the thing that sits at the heart of their entire lives, right? not just uh, their work, not just their job, 
you know, their life, their livelihood, their reputation, their sense of themselves. The fabric of their, all of their communications with their own children, their own spouse, all of their parishioners. That thing that sat at the very heart of it all, they came to understand, was a lie. Was not there at all. And this was not a study of ex-preachers or ex-priests. There are plenty of those. There are plenty of interviews with atheist former ministers. These were the ones who were in too deep. And as Dennett says, you know, it wasn't, it's not just a question of intellectual courage. In many cases, the only rational decision one could make on uh, uh, considering all of the variables, the only rational decision is to stay in the church. Because without it, they would be, in many cases, truly ruined. And so they carry on. And some of them find a way to do it with something like, uh, in, in something like good spirits. And listening to this part of the lecture, I realized that this figure of the faithless preacher, the person who had studied for many years, who had devoted his life, who had devoted his work, his scholarship, his care, his rhetorical energies, his social life, in many cases, his family, his spouse, had devoted everything to this cause, to this central belief, and then come to understand that it was just smoke and mirrors, that it was just methane and gamma rays. This figure was deeply familiar to me because it basically was describing many of the poetry professors I know. I mean, I think that if you look at, so if you wanna, if, if, if you look at poetry professors today, here's, here's, a, here's an exercise. Go to the nearest university, go to the English department. If there are professors of creative writing specifically, if there is a, a uh, if there are professors who have MFAs or perhaps even doctorates of creative writing, which is a, a relatively recent innovation that I still find to be uh, sort of baffling. But you know, if you find a, a figure like this, if you find somebody who who is a tenured professor who is not a, is not a professor of English literature, but is a professor of creative writing who is a white man, 60 years or older, whose primary output has been poetry, right? With fiction, a little more complicated, but if, if you find basically a professor of poetry who is a white man, 60 years or older, there are some people who match this description who are wonderful poets and who are devoted teachers, and who are lovely human beings. 
But I would say you could pretty much flip a coin and about half of them may be lovely human beings and they may even be devoted teachers, but they are going to be at the heart, the heart, they are going to know that what they are doing is bullshit. And they're in too deep. It's been too long. They've invested too much. They can't back out now. And so they keep teaching it. And they keep publishing. I mean, I think there are people, I think there are people who've published a dozen books of poetry who stopped believing in poetry half a dozen books ago. But they're they're in it. So they, they keep cranking out the sermons. And you know, I don't, uh, as I suggested earlier, I, I I don't entirely hold it against them. Just as I don't really hold it against the, the preachers. I mean, I, my, my heart goes out to them in a way. And really, if there's if there's any if there's any uh, silver, silver lining, if there's any silver lining to the uh, rapid recent dissolution of uh, the MFA industrial complex that has set in in the last uh, couple decades. You know, I think that the 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 tenure track MFA in poetry lifestyle was a pyramid scheme that has really reached its tippy top tumbling point. And I would say that the, the, the only way in, the, in which this is potentially good news is that when I think about all of those uh, stranded preachers who, who are stuck in their churches, they're stuck in their lives, they're trapped. I think if there were no job there for them in the first place, if the church that supported them wasn't able to support them to begin with, then maybe they would be less likely to have stuck around because in order to stick around, they would have to be doing it for some other reason. They would have to have, they would have to be motivated by something other than simply a desire for their own security. And so I think, you know, it may be that as there are fewer and fewer you know, real jobs for people teaching poetry, as, as poetry undergoes a sort of a deprofessionalization period, as is happening right now, my hope maybe is that this means that there will be fewer of these stranded, closeted poetry atheists. Because to clarify, while I don't believe in God, I do actually believe in poetry. I just think that most of what most people teach as poetry most of the time is, you know, somewhere between innocent doggerel and outright nonsense. And I think, again, in our, in our heart of hearts, most of us quietly, Sunday after the sermon's over, most of us quietly realize this. And maybe someday soon, there will be nowhere else to hide, and so there will be no more reason to. And some of us who have been sticking around all these years 
pumping out empty books of poems in order to keep our hand in, maybe some of us can just quietly withdraw and go back to betting on horses or playing backgammon. Fingers crossed. everybody, I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith and you're listening to Slee Rickets. I wanted to say thank you quickly for a very nice and very long new review that the show got in Apple Podcasts, especially because this reviewer, which in all, all honesty, I'm very grateful and I, uh, I'm, I do actually welcome <laughs> this. I do welcome constructive criticism. And this review uh, supplied a lot of it. In particular, the, the specific advice that I swear less often on the show. And as I said, I, I, I appreciate that. I invite constructive criticism. And I just want you to know that I take every goddamn word of that shit straight to fucking heart. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do review the show, rate the show, subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever. And uh, most of all, if you have a chance, just recommend the podcast to somebody you think might enjoy it. I, I do appreciate it. And as always, I appreciate you listening. And write to me with any suggestions or questions or complaints to uh, write to sleevericketts at gmail.com. I, I, I do want to get back into coherence and incoherence in the next couple weeks, but I've actually, I've actually been setting up a number of different sort of interesting, I've said, I've been working on a kind of an interesting variety of episodes coming up. So coherence and incoherence are both very much on my mind still, as is Cameron's really thoughtful email on the subject. Uh, Cameron did bring up the the question of modernism versus postmodernism, which boy, just once again, made me wish I had actually been an English major. So I, I am still chewing on that and I will get back to it, I promise, but not this week, uh, not quite yet. Finally, and in, in just in, in getting a um, housekeeping taken care of, I have to offer a, a confession and an apology. <laughs> so I, uh, I was very graciously invited to participate in a Zoom poetry reading. Uh, and I, I accepted. I, who am I to, to turn my nose up? Um, it was a very gracious invitation, and even better, with very impressive company. So I, I will be participating in a Zoom poetry reading this Saturday, uh, August 21st at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's uh, Able Muse is hosting the reading. It is free. You have to, to register in some capacity. I don't totally understand, but I'll include a link uh, and uh, but it is all free. And more excitingly, the two other readers are Marion Corbett and Frank Osen, both able news veterans, eratosphere veterans, and much more accomplished poets than I. I just on a <laughs> not a complaint, but a, a small note, I, I was amused, I will say. We were asked to submit short biographical notes. I submitted one. And I said, 
as, as I always do. Feel free to edit it as needed. And they did. They did feel free to edit it as needed, as they should. They added a, a number of uh, details. Uh, I tend to, to aim for kind of a stripped down bio. They added a number of details, which is perfectly fine. I did notice that they've removed one detail from my official bio. That detail being that I host this podcast. <laughs> and I can't help but just wonder if it might have anything to do with the very first minute of the very first episode <laughs> in which I pretty mercilessly uh, shit on and dismantle the premise of Zoom poetry. I, I, I speak uh, quite brutally <laughs> and dismissively. And I am sorry. I Not because I think I said anything exactly wrong, but because uh, I'm just clearly such a piece of shit. So uh, apologies to Able Muse. Apologies to all of you. Uh, apologies to uh, whatever gods of consistency are keeping marks on, on me right now. I uh, I have failed roundly, but I do uh, I do plan to try to make it as entertaining a reading as I can. As for Marianne and Frank, I have no doubts they will do a stellar job. So again, that's something that will be happening this Saturday. I feel uh, I think rightly humbled by the whole thing and I'll include a, a, a link in the show notes and and I do I should say again thanks to April Muse which has been nothing but incredibly generous and supportive to me through my entire brief and uh, mostly ignominious career in poetry with that let's get to this week's exciting topic <laughs> in place of everything else you might have hoped I'd be talking about this week I will be talking about death A quick clarification on something I said earlier. The, the only reason I uh, restricted my proposed thought experiment regarding the poetry faculty at various universities uh, was, was not because I think that white men in their 60s are somehow more likely to deceive themselves uh, in, in, a, in this particular way than anybody else, obviously. Every age, race, and gender produces its frauds and mediocrities. I, I just meant this specifically because among the senior faculty at universities right now, the white men are those, I think, probably most likely to have stumbled into the profession. That is, you know, when they were coming up, it was, if you were going to get into teaching poetry just because, hey, it seemed fun, or hey, I guess I have kind of a knack, or hey, somebody said I ought to do it, maybe. Uh, you were more likely to be able to do that if you were a white man. So that, that's really all I meant. So you can now go back to the uh, angry email you were composing, uh, delete it, and write a different angry email now that you understand <laughs> my meaning. So I... Uh, I started this podcast partly because I got really fed up with poetry, and more specifically with the poetry world. But I also, but I also, as I said earlier, I love poetry. I believe in poetry, and so it is. I I make a point sometimes when I find myself especially disheartened 
to refresh that love of poetry, to remind myself why it is that I love poetry. So with that in mind, I was leafing through the other day one of my very favorite poetry anthologies. This is the New Oxford Book of English Verse. I have the 1972 edition, which was edited by Helen Gardner. This was, by the way, the same, it may have been the, the old or the, the Oxford Book of English Verse, uh, but it's the same anthology that was once edited by Arthur Quiller Couch, or Couch, or Couch, uh, coiner of the uh, writing advice, Murder Your Darlings, among uh, some significant other things. And I do, at some point, want to do a, a, an episode on his wonderful Cambridge writing lectures. But the, uh, the, the New Oxford Book of English Verse is, it's handsome, it's sturdy, it's nicely laid out. But one of the things I especially love about it as an anthology and it is a, it's a selections, right? It's, it's, it is uh, short lyrics and excerpts from longer lyrics sort of framed and in some cases retitled by Helen Gardner. So it is a, it is a sort of a public commonplace book. And part of what I really love about it is that there's no table of contents. There's no table of contents. So you can't look for anything unless you you know happen to have marked it or you sort of estimate, and and it is it is in chronological order I believe, but uh, really it's just ideal for leafing through and and stumbling upon things that you haven't seen before. So uh, the other day I did just that I was leafing through it and I found this funny little Walter Raleigh poem I had not read before. It's quite short. Um, and it is titled in the in this anthology it's titled all the world's a stage uh which we'll recognize obviously as a line from uh i think it's jay Quee's speech in as you like it um all the world's the stage and all the men and women in it merely players i think is how that goes but so i, I was curious about the date of this um well here let me, let me read it to you because i think it's actually a quite good little lyric and then I, I learned maybe something else interesting about it. Uh, so this is uh, this is listed in the New Oxford Book of English Verse as All the World's a Stage, but it's a little lyric by Sir Walter Raleigh. What is our life? A play of passion. Our mirth, the music of division. Our mother's wombs, the tiring houses be. Where we are dressed for this short comedy Heaven the judicious sharp spectator is, that sits and marks still who doth act amiss. Our graves that hide us from the searching sun are like drawn curtains when the play is done. Thus march we, playing, to our latest rest. Only we die in earnest, that's no jest. So as I mentioned earlier, I was curious about that, the date, just on the off chance that he he might have written this before As You Like It, and, and you know, perhaps this was his title. As it turns out, I think the, the, the versions I found online uh, tend to have other titles, seemingly also inserted by editors. Some of them are just Life or The Play of Life or something like this. But what, what um, here, the one in uh, Bartleby was uh, What is Our Life, which is, you know, the first sentence of the poem. 
But what surprised me was that most of the places I was able to find the poem online, I found a variation of it, a variant, um, and not a, by to my eyes, an earlier variant of it, right? So this is not, un, it's not uncommon to find variants of old poems, but uh, typically the, the unrevised versions live in books for scholars. There are a couple of cases. Uh, uh, Odin, a Grecian urn, has a, a significant difference in the last line, depending on whether or not quotation marks appear, for example. But in this one, it seemed pretty clear to me that the, the version that I found mostly online was, was written earlier than the one in this book and is a worse version, right? So he, he seemed to have revised it well into the version that I read from the version that I was able to find online. Uh, uh, there are a couple of reasons I, I thought that. There's a, a, you know, a few lines are, are a little bit different. He, in, the, in, in this one online, he says, the earth, the stage, heaven, the spectator is. Whereas in the, what I think is the later version, he says, heaven, the judicious, sharp spectator is. I think partly because, uh, uh, I think basically because the earth, the stage sort of goes without saying, that's kind of the conceit of the whole, the whole poem. And so he, he, he uh, decides to zero in a little more on the, uh, on the conceit of heaven as spectator. And then he, in a later line, he, he says, uh, the graves which hide us from the scorching sun are like drawn curtains when the play is done. In the version I read in, in uh, Helen Gardner's book, it's our graves that hide us from the searching sun. And I would be very surprised if scorching sun were not the earlier version because scorching sun is, of course, the, the more obvious choice. Right? You, what, what seems most likely is that you would, the ready to hand, almost stamp, you know, cliched stamped version is scorching sun. You write that down and then you say, well, scorching is a little unnecessary there. Is there another word? And the sound of scorching is what leads you to searching, the searching sun, which is a more, a little juicier of a choice, a less obvious choice. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that the version in Gardner's anthology is the, the later and better version, but I'm most convinced of this because of the last line. The version I was able to find online ends with the line, and then we die in earnest, not in jest. Whereas the version in Gardner's anthology ends, only we die in earnest, that's no jest. So the biggest difference there, there are a couple little, little subtle differences, but the biggest difference is, uh, is the difference between and then and only. And I think only is a better choice for at least three reasons. <laughs> One, very simply, is, is the meter. And then we die in earnest, not in jest. The whole poem has been presenting this sort of extended metaphor wherein uh, the life is a play and we are all participating in it together and uh, we're going through all the motions and it sort of, it, it ends up in some cases reducing the seriousness of life, you know, by turning it into an image, a metaphor, a comparison. So we start with um, our mother's wombs, right, that vital, physical, literal condition, and he turns these into the tiring houses, the changing rooms, 
we start with the graves, which are real, right? Are real graves. Uh, but then these get turned into the drawn curtains. So as in a play, it's not for real. Everything's sort of for pretend. But it's in the last line that he he turns. There's a there is a volta. It's not a sonnet, but there is a volta. There's a turn in the last line. He says, "Oh, but this part is the part that's not pretend. This is the real part." But in this uh, in this earlier version, and then we die in earnest, not in jest. We're just iams all the way through. There's no disruption. There's no shaking up that steady uh, kerplunking through the poem. And in the in the I think the revised version we have only, which is a trochee that starts that line. We have an, an abrupt reversal in the very first foot of that line. Only we die in earnest. We're, we're, it jumps in at us and throws us off a little bit, lets us know something has changed. Only also, of course, functions as a conjunction, meaning basically, but we die in earnest, not unjust. You know, it's it's but rather than and in that sense, right? And then, well, it's not quite and then, it's but, right? It's it's different from everything else. So it should be only we die in earnest, not in jest. I think the third reason, though, that only is, all, is a really good choice is that it it, it casts over the, the last line the ghostly suggestion not just of conjunction, it's, you know, it's conjunctive function only, but of its adverbial function. Right? Only also means as one, singularly, by itself, alone. And that solitude, right? We are doing all of this as a, as a cast, right? We are the players, we are a team, we are all together and we're with an audience. We're being watched the whole time. There's, everything is happening, everything is happening as, uh, as Tom Stopper points out, actors love to do embarrassing things in front of people. And the only thing that's, you know, what, what for most people would be mortifying to do in public for actors is mortifying to do if nobody is watching. And so there is something comforting about heaven being a spectator, about everybody being together. We get to the end, however, only we die in earnest. That's no jest. Only, alone. And lingering on that, that choice reminded me of something I actually mentioned last week, just in passing. This is, uh, this is something I, um, I, I it's a recommendation, uh, a, a genuine recommendation. So I recommended this series of lectures. It's actually a course. It's a publicly available course, Yale. I think it's the Yale Open Courses. It's, um, it's available on most uh, podcasting platforms. And it is a 24 session course, I think. Uh, it's a, a real course, a lecture course taught by the philosopher Shelley Kagan, who's a professor at Yale, and the course is just called Death. It's really good. He is a extraordinarily gifted and charming and engrossing lecturer. He is, uh, you know, my my wife's favorite thing in the world. I guess after working hard montages, perhaps, or you know, if you could combine the two, it would be ideal. Her, you know, one of her very favorite things is having. A, a very smart person explain things to her. I say that, by the way, with with not a trace of condescension, because uh, my my wife is is in by every conventional measure, by every normal standard of what smartness is, she is unquestionably the smartest person I know. Um, and it, it's only if you you know the, the only way to challenge her supremacy is to uh, is to look for the 
the very obscure and esoteric and totally useless species of intelligence, in which case I maybe know a couple of weirdos who can give her a run for her money. But she loves she loves listening to smart lectures by smart people on smart things. And this is the best version of that. Uh, it is, it, as I said, is it, it is a course you can do it. Uh, I don't think the there are any assignments included uh, other than readings. There are some suggested readings and they are very helpful, but I think you could really enjoy it just listening to it as is. He's a very, his lectures tend to be pretty comprehensive. So I, I, I greatly enjoyed it. I will certainly include a link in the show notes and I recommend you listen to it uh, just for for pure pleasure it's just it's just it's like nerd candy there is though there were some places in it where I I, I disagreed with him of course I, I disagree with almost everybody I listen to everybody I read as I said last week but there was there was one point where he seemed really off base he, he devotes a, a significant portion of one of the lectures to a, a common expression that he takes great issue with. And this expression is, uh, we all die alone. Sometimes it appears in the form, everyone dies alone. But you know, uh, in one or the other form, it appears a, a fair amount in fiction, in certainly in TV dramas, in uh, uh, popular nonfiction in uh, conversation sometimes in, in in public speeches statements it is uh, as he suggests often meant to convey a sort of uh, a, a stern stoic willingness to confront life's difficult truths uh, Kagan hates this expression he fucking hates it and he can't he, he really can't help himself in his pretty painstaking deconstruction of it. So he, he, he starts by taking it at face value and asking, all right, is there a sense in which this is both true and worth saying? So he, he does, with this um, lecture was recorded two years before Daniel Dennett's speech, so he, he doesn't use the term, but he is more or less accusing We All Die Alone of being a deepity. So he, he tries to identify a, a literal meaning that might be true to start with, and he, he says, well, all right, first of all, we all die alone. Now, if this means we are all alone when we die. Well, that's not true. Right? Plenty of us have other people in the room with us when we die. So that, that can't be what is meant. Um, maybe what's meant is when we die, we are always the only one who is dying. But that's also not true. right? People die in the company of others who are also dying. You know, not as often, perhaps, but but also not not really infrequently. So so that doesn't seem to be what could be meant. Nor does it really seem to make sense to say we all die alone means we all feel alone when we die. Certainly, many people may feel alone when they die, but but not all by any stretch. He he uses uh, Socrates as as, as a, a famous example of someone who seemed to be in pretty 
pretty, a pretty cheerful mood when he died. His last uh, words famously being, I owe a cock to Asculapius, suggesting that he had been healed. And so he needed to make, make a sacrifice to the god of healing. So he, he, he um, runs down all of these possible interpretations of the statement, we all die alone. And he comes to one, he actually in the middle of his, his list of possible meanings, he, he, he touches on a meaning that he says, yeah, okay, so this could possibly be what is meant. But if this is true, it's not a big deal. It's not really worth saying. So, so the literal interpretation he, he does credit as being plausible, at least, is the interpretation that might say, we all have to die our own deaths. That is, death is non-fungible. My, my favorite uh, Onion headline, the, the satirical newspaper, The Onion, my, my very favorite Onion headline from back in college is simply <laughs> Existentialist Firefighter Delays Four Deaths. Oh, I, I just... Ah, the work of genius. Just per, whoever wrote that, just exquisite. Perfectly done. So th that, I think, is, is maybe what is the per, perhaps the literal meaning of We All Die Alone, that you can... Uh, you can delay someone else's death. You can change the terms of someone else's death. You can hasten someone else's death. You can modify someone else's death in any number of ways, perhaps, but you can't remove someone else's death and take it and die in that person's place. Not really. Everyone has to die his own death. Kagan says that this is not really worth saying because everyone dies his own death. You know, my death is no one else's death. He says it's really just, this is a statement not about death, but about the possessive pronoun my. And he says the same is basically true if you want to talk about my lunch or my haircut. No one else can eat my lunch for me. No one else can. There's a, I think it was Winston Churchill once said that a democracy is like blowing your nose. You don't have to do it well, but no one else can do it for you. I think that was Churchill. So uh, Kagan seems to say this is sort of true of almost everything. It is my hat. It is my, uh, my dental appointment, uh, my nap. No one else can nap my nap for me. And so he says, this is so banal as to be really not at all worth saying. And it's certainly not worth saying with the air of profundity that so often attends public or dramatic statements of that uh, we, we all die alone. I, I, I think his, his reasoning is pretty good throughout, but I, I, I really resist this particular dismissal. And it's accompanied by a, he, he assigns to his class the, the really wonderful uh, long, long short story or short, short novella, The Death of Ivan Illich by, by Tolstoy. He, he assigns this to his class, the, the Death of Ivan Illich, if you haven't read it, really, really wonderful. It, it starts with the funeral of this man 
goes back, it covers his entire life fairly quickly. I think it's maybe 50 pages or so, depending on the edition, 70 maybe. Uh, but he, he sort of whizzes through his life. He is a, a pretty comfortable upper middle class uh, guy who who bumbles through his life with with pretty decent luck and, and more or less uh, lives lives happily and comfortably and has a little bit of uh, a little bit of bad um, luck here and there. He injures his leg at some point, and and that injury lingers. And it's uh, finally uh, toward the end of his life when he he realizes that he's really sick. That there comes this strange moment. There comes this moment when Ivan Illich is dying, and he he realizes that he's dying, and that is shocking to him. That is horrifying to him. And he actually literally screams with horror at the realization. Kagan similarly criticizes Tolstoy here, saying, well, one doesn't write this story merely to suggest that there could be a person like Ivan Illich who could theoretically have a reaction like this. No, one writes this story in order to suggest that maybe there is something about this reaction that is somewhat universal. That maybe all of us ought to have this reaction. And Kagan's response to this is somewhat, somewhat shallow. I don't know, somewhat lazy. I think he basically says, well, look at this room. This is a room full of you know, young adult people and some less young adult people, all of whom are very smart and all of whom know perfectly well that they will eventually die. And nobody in this room is screaming. So really, it seems as if Ivan Illich is overreacting. And, and more to the point, it seems as if Tolstoy is reacting, just as it seems as if everybody who makes a point of saying we all die alone is overreacting. Because really, the fact at which you are screaming, the fact at which you are uh, recoiling in horror is totally banal, totally unremarkable. We all have to die our own deaths. So what? Big deal. Grown-ups don't don't blanch at that thought. They don't. Uh, their stomachs don't turn when they think about this. And you know, Shelley Kagan is a lot smarter than I am. Like like almost everybody, I, I argue with on this podcast, he is a whole lot smarter than I am. But I, I do think that that this reminded me of uh, another person who was who's much smarter than I am a really wonderful philosophy professor I had in college, Dr. Elizabeth Bryant. I think she's still teaching uh, philosophy at the, the University of Georgia. Really wonderful uh, professor and, and um, uh, very uh, just lo lovely person. But she, she got her graduate degree in Germany. And in, in Germany, when you get a doctorate, you have an advisor or sort of a, a person who, who, who watches over you in, as you pursue your degree and this person is your sort of your close confidant and and uh, teacher throughout this process and the the word they have for it in german is doktorvater so literally your doctor father is the person who guides you like virgil in your pursuit of the phd and and she 
in class used to uh, paraphrase her Dr. Vater, saying in particular, to read well, it is not enough to read with right understanding. You must also read with the right mood. I remember the first time I heard this, read with the right mood, it seemed silly to me. It seemed sort of childish. What does your mood have to do with understanding what you're reading? But, uh, you know, I think as I got more practice writing, <laughs> more practice reading, and uh, more practice being a person, I, I, I've come to find this to be really deeply true. That, I mean, I think, uh, so uh, the other week I mentioned that the, there was a, the, the, I think the common use of the term bad faith in popular conversation today tends to refer to a sort of an external deception, an, an external uh, disjunction between what you say you're doing and what you're actually doing when you take part in a conversation. If you are, if you are participating in bad faith, it means that you are not really doing what you say you're doing. The, the use of bad faith that I was more accustomed to, that, that's sort of the way I tend to think about the term, is, is similar, but it tends to refer to a, an internal deception, an internal misalignment, which is to say that you are not doing the thing that you think you are doing. You are not approaching the world in the way that you tell yourself you are approaching the world. And this is where mood seems to me really important. It's possible to read something with a, I think maybe another, another and this is a place where I think the ambiguity between mood and tone might be meaningful. I think that, that it is possible to read with the wrong mood. I think it is also possible to read with the wrong tone. But uh, I, I think we all die alone, the way Kagan is reading it, is I think he is reading it in the wrong mood or maybe with the wrong tone. And I think of, um, I, I think it was in, I didn't read the whole book, but I read a couple, I read a couple of chapters that were recommended of Atul Gawande's uh, big uh, popular nonfiction bestseller, Being Mortal. And, and it, he talks a lot about assisted living and hospice. And in, in one, I think it was in one of those chapters, he talked to a hospice nurse who used the expression existential slap. And she was talking about people who get very bad diagnoses people who get terminal diagnoses. And she, as a hospice nurse, sees them only when that has already happened, sometimes shortly after that has happened. And she said that most people, even quite elderly people, tend to undergo a period of shock. If not, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Rossian stages of denial and so forth, 
then some form of resistance to the, the inevitable. That is, people, you know, fully reasonable, intelligent, well-educated, grown-up people who know very well that cancer exists, and they know very well how old they are, and they know very well plenty of other people have died of plenty of other things. When they get the news that they are dying, they respond with shock. And not just shock that, oh, this is bad news I'm getting today, but shock that this can be. I remember the last time I got in a, a, a car wreck, I got T-boned by a taxi cab um, who was driving the wrong way. Uh, but I remember just, just a moment before he hit, I remember thinking to myself, huh, I wonder how I avoid getting in a wreck this time. Like, I, I wonder what, what a, a fortunate turn of events allows me barely to escape without getting into a wreck. Because even at that moment, part of me wasn't accepting that I was about to get uh, my car totaled. <laughs> uh, thankfully, nobody was hurt. But it seems to me quite likely that this is uh, uh, many people's response to hearing this news. And so when, uh, you know, when Kagan says, oh, we're a room full of people we all know we're going to die and we're not screaming, I think he's... He's playing real fast and loose with the word no. Right? I think there's, there's knowing and there's knowing. And I think even once you have realized something, there is a difference between realizing something and having realized it. It comes, it feels truer in the moment when you come to understand it. Once you have understood it and you have digested it, it is easier to live with, but also it's less present as an emerging reality. So I agree with him. I'll say I agree with him that I think we all die alone is, is a cliche. And, and I think that people who say that or write it into scripts are often doing so with the goal of projecting a, a toughness and stoicism and a, 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 an intellectual moral strength, a courage to face up to uh, the, the difficulties of, of life as it is. And very often that is a, a toughness they do not possess. So, so I'm with him in thinking that this is, uh, this is not a, an especially valuable statement. But... I actually think that the impulse that leads people to use a cliche like that is not all that different than the impulse that leads people to dismiss the importance of a statement like that. Because one's own lunch is different from one's own death for exactly the same reason that having coffee with someone who's not your wife is different than having sex with someone who's not your wife. Death is not unique in its my ownness. Pain is also significant in that way. Birth, marriage, death. What's the, the Larkin line? Marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these. 
there are there are a number of experiences or conditions that belong to me and me alone in a way that is a little bit startling really truly non-transferable and it's different than my haircut or my lunch or my nap because the fact that it is non-transferable matters more in this case. It's not as big a deal that my nap is only my nap. It's not as big a deal that my going to the bathroom is only my going to the bathroom. It is a pretty big deal that my physical agony is only mine. You know, there's nothing more useless than a husband uh, at, at a labor and delivery. I, I've been to two, and I've been quite useless at both. And it is really awe-inspiring the degree to which, however close my wife and I might have been, however much I might have been devoted to what was happening, boy, there were a 100,000 miles between her body and mine. And they were completely non-transferable. And when I let her finish the last bite of cheesecake because both of us can't have the same last bite of cheesecake, it is, a, it is not as big a deal. It is not the same thing. It is uh, a difference. It is so radical a difference of degree that it might as well be a difference of kind. It's different because it's obviously different. And I tend to think that the insistence that it is not different, the insistence that the fact of death is banal, is not a big deal, that, hey, if life went on forever, it would be terrible, so it's a good thing that we die, which is an argument he sort of makes in his lecture series at some point. I, I think that that is actually quite similar in its psychological effect to saying, hey, man, we all die alone, and pretending that you've already gotten it. You know, the thing that I, I love about a fundamentalist religious people and French existentialists is that they both agree that it's a big deal. It's a big deal, whether there is a God or not. Nietzsche, Nietzsche, who did not believe in God, who, who extra did not believe in God, he believed it was a big deal. And I think that maybe if there's something Kagan's different, uh, guilty of here, it, it, though it is a wonderful series, it's a wonderful lecture series on death, it is that he is a little bit guilty of, of trying to suggest that it's just not that big a deal that we die. I don't, because I'm not a philosopher, because I'm not nearly as smart as Shelley Kagan, I certainly don't have a final philosophical refutation of his dismissal of Ivan Illich or of we all die alone as a meaningless statement. I, I do think that um, poetry offers a pretty good offers a pretty good case against the suggestion that once you have read something, you know it forever. Or once you know the words for something, you know it forever. Because poetry, 
uh, William Carlos Williams says, uh, you know, it, it, um, it is hard to get the news from poetry, but men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. And and, and I think in, to the extent to which that is true, I've always it's it's uh, it's like the um, like the shaking your fist at, at Plato's ideal city. Or God, what was Shelley's line? Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. It's, it's one of those lines about poetry that sounds really good. And I always think, yeah, but is that really, is that true? Is that even sort of true? Or is it just, is it just like a, a sort of bold expression of poetic chauvinism? I, I, I don't know. But if there is a sense in which it is true that poetry gives you news, it's not new news. It's just news that we have to keep being given over and over again. Right? I mean, Raleigh's conceit that life's a play, life's, you know, we are all on a stage, and his rattling off all of the different elements of this conceit is actually really setting us up to forget about death. So that then when he reminds us, only we die in earnest. That's no jest. It stings a little bit again. We feel just for a moment a little bit of that slap, that existential slap, that recognition, the sharp intake of breath. Like the first time when you're six years old and some kid on the playground tells you, oh, uh, uh, you get babies when you put a penis in a vagina and you, your mind reels in horror. <laughs> you say, no, no, not that. It can't be true. Raleigh gives us, you know, good poetry tells us old news, but it tells it to us in a way that makes it land again and elicits a response, the kind of response that uh, Ivan Illich expresses as a scream. And uh, I think Shelley Kagan in this particular lecture overlooks. But the, the very best poetic evocation of death's loneliness that I think I have encountered is, is, is in an otherwise pretty unremarkable poem. Really, it's sort of a piece almost of, um, today we might call it outsider art. This is the uh, early 16th century, late 15th century play, Everyman, it is, I think they now think that it's actually a, tra a sort of a loose, sloppy translation of a Dutch play that was written in like 1485. But it's, uh, every man, if, if you know it, it is, it's very poorly written. It's written in very clumsy, sort of galloping doggerel uh, rhyme and meter. It's really, it, it is not at all skillful. It is written definitely as a community theater piece. But it, it tells a story of, it's, it's all allegorical. So the central character is every man. And he is visited by death. And death comes to him and says, I summon you. It's time. Let's go. And death says, and every man says, oh, what? No, no, I'm not ready. I was just having a party. I was just hanging out and enjoying life. I'm not ready to die. And death says, well, it's too late. I got I to gotta take you with me. So every man stalls a little bit and he manages to, to wheedle out a little bit of time and he, he goes to find somebody who will accompany him so he's not alone. 
which it is an interesting motivation, I think. It's, it's, it's an interesting way to address that problem. In, in Euripides' Alcestis, Admetus gets a similar piece of news at the beginning, but he tries to... Oh, shoot, I can't remember the word. That whole, that whole play may take place after the fact. But at any rate, in the story of Admetus and Alcestis, Admetus, of course, is given similar news, and, and uh, he doesn't try to get someone to go with him. He tries to get someone to go instead of him. But there is something, I think, touching about every man's impulse, which is, oh, I don't want to die, but I really don't want to die alone. So let me just find someone who will come with me. So he goes to his friends and they say, yeah, we'll go anywhere with you. He says, okay, great. Let's go to death, which is where I'm headed. And they say, oh no, God, not that. And he goes to his, his kindred, his family. And he says, will you come with me? And they say, we'll go anywhere with you. Where is it you're going? Oh, death? No. So he goes then, having having been turned down by friends and family, he goes to his worldly possessions. I think in the play they're called goods, which is a, a person. It's his stuff. And his stuff says, you got to be kidding. I can't, I'm not going with you. You can't take me with you. So he, he finally um, turns to knowledge. Knowledge says, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you. So these, these are all, all um, allegorical figures. So there are literally human beings on stage pretending to be knowledge, every man's knowledge. Knowledge says every man's good deeds would come with him, but can't because they're so weak, because he has so neglected them. Because every man has been doing nothing but enjoying life and serving his own interests and his good deeds are sick and dying on the floor, like a, a, a Tinkerbell if nobody was clapping. And so knowledge helps him out by saying, aha, I know how to, how to help uh, strengthen your good deeds. It tells you something about, of course, medieval Christian morality. Uh, knowledge's solution is let's go to confession, confess your sins, and then whip yourself. And every man confesses his sins and whips himself and the good deed springs up, <laughs> springs to life, rejuvenated, filled with uh, lots of strength. Now that he's uh, every man has done his done his good deed by whipping himself. So good good deed says, all right, I'm going to go with you now, every man. You won't have to die alone. And the play, if the play were just a morality play, it could end there. And, and it and it basically, you know, it, he could go with good deeds to his grave, which he does at the end. And then there would be a little messenger angel character who announces the moral of the story at the end. And, and, and they would have a little dance and that would be that. And that's, that is really the moral plot of the book, of the, of the play, that that's all really that happens. So it is curious that there is this additional episode inserted here, right? Every man has already learned his lesson. He's already learned that good time buddies and even family and all of your worldly possessions can't save you and certainly can't come with you. But you, uh, all that really matters, all you really take with you at the end is your good deeds. He's learned his lesson. The play's kind of over. Only in this strange little episode, after he's learned the moral of the story, he meets up with his discretion, his strength, his beauty, his physical condition, his beauty, and his five wits. I mentioned them in a very early episode, I think. Five wits being, I think I looked them up, and it's memory, imagination, fantasy, 
common sense and estimation. And every time I look them up, I then also have to look up how the medieval thinkers distinguished among those. And I, I can't remember right now, but I'm going to uh, talk to Marianne Corbett soon. So maybe I can get her to give me a breakdown of them. So every man, uh, suddenly it's a very crowded stage, right? He's got knowledge. He's got his good deeds. And then he, he bumps into discretion, beauty, strength, and the five wits. I think the five wits are probably represented just by one person, but they could easily be represented by five. It's a very, it's a big crowd of people, right? He's very much not alone now. And all of them say, we are going with you all the way. We're with you. Don't worry. You know, I'm going to my grave. I'm going to die. And they say, it doesn't matter. We're going to come with you. Don't worry. We're part of you. You can't leave us behind. We are part of you. And it, it is a... You know, we've already kind of gotten the point of the play, and so it's a little bit of a curious moment. It's sort of uplifting, but it's sort of a strange moment. And then something even stranger happens. So every man, strength, discretion, good deeds, beauty, and the five wits all go together in a big crowd to the side of the grave. And Every man says, alas, I am so faint, I may not stand, my limbs under me do fold. Friends, let us not turn again to this land, not for all the world's gold. For into this cave must I creep, and turn to earth, and there to sleep. And Beauty, he's the first one to speak up, I love this. I love Beauty's line. After all of this has been explained, Beauty says, what? Into this grave? Alas! <laughs> Oh shit, you meant a grave grave. And uh, Beauty uh, uh, bugs out, leaves, just says, oh, fuck that. No, I'm, no, no. Uh, peace, I am deaf. I look not behind me, not, and thou would give me all the gold in thy chest. Exit Beauty. Great, great stage direction. Exit Beauty. Uh, every man, alas, whereto may I trust? Beauty goeth fast away from me. She promised with me to live and die. Strength, strength says, Every man I will thee also forsake and deny. Thy game liketh me not at all. <laughs> this is, I don't like this game. I'm, I'm getting out of here. So strength leaves. And then discretion says, Every man I will after strength be gone. As for me, I will leave you alone. Every man, why, why discretion? Will ye forsake me? Discretion, yea, if in faith I will go from thee. For when strength goeth before, I follow after evermore. Every man, Yet I pray thee, for the love of the Trinity, look in my grave once piteously, discretion. Nay, so nigh will I not come. Farewell, everyone. The better part of valor here clearly is discretion. Then the five wits say, Every man my leave now of thee I take. I will follow the other, for here I thee forsake. I will no longer thee keep. Now farewell, and there an end. Exit five wits. And then every man is alone again with his good deeds and knowledge. And knowledge says, well... You know, your good deeds go with you to heaven and uh, they will help you, help make sure that you, you go to the good place, not the bad place. And don't worry, even though all of these other things left you, I'm going to stay with you. And then, and then every man goes to his grave and knowledge says, oh, except here I am going to leave you. <laughs> and uh, good deeds sticks around. But what I find so wonderful about this episode is that if it, if it weren't here at all, we already saw everybody else forsake every man. And we saw him learn his lesson about what he's suppo what's supposed to matter and what he should care about. 
And we saw him cling to his good deeds and say, ah, this is really the thing I should have been thinking about the whole time. And good deeds stuck with him. So the comfort provided by good deeds steadfastness, we've already priced in. Before this episode, where all these other people came in and assured him that they were going to stay with him. And then one by one, they abandon him. So that the effect is that good deeds feels far, it feels almost like no company at all. Right? We'd already been comforted by that. And now the note on which every man actually enters his grave is one of, uh, of disappointment, of despair. You know, this is a lyric moment in the play. This is not the plot. This is not really dramatic, properly speaking. This is a lyric moment. And the final impression the play leaves is not one of salvation. It's not one of redemption. It's not, here is the way not to be lonely when you die. Here is the way not to go alone unto your death. The real final impression after this crowd of people flees, abandons every man. And even after promising to stay with him, the final impression we leave the play with is, in fact, that every man dies alone. Some of these episodes have had topics it is Difficult to find a good concluding poem to match. Maybe the least challenging of these is death. But I thought I would read a poem, not properly speaking about death today, but maybe about consolation. So this is a poem by Rachel Wetstein. It is from her collection Silver Roses. The poem is called Nightingales. Okay, Nightingales originally appeared in the New York Sun. And uh, then, of course, it, it appeared again in Silver Roses, uh, Westian's final collection, which was published in 2010, a year after she committed suicide. Her, her poems um, sometimes set up poetry as a kind of counterweight or consolation to the difficulty of being a living person in the world. And, and in particular, the difficulty of being lonely. So this is really a poem about how fun it is to love poetry. And even to, in the company of certain nerdy people, speak in allusions and quotations, and uh, let poetry become some of the texture of your, your daily conversations, not for any educational purpose, not really in uh, pursuit of any goal in particular, but just for sheer enjoyment. So uh, the poem's called Nightingales, and the, the obvious reference in the first stanza is to uh, Keats' Ode to a Nightingale, which the cheeky dude in the bar with her quotes in a cutesy way, and she uh, comes back at him with her characteristically sharp tongue. So this is Nightingale. It's a sonnet. Yes, I know what it's from, and so do you. 
when, after some bird makes a sound outside, you speak of drowsy numbness. And I shoo the thought away and claim the thing that cried is day's lark, warming up to travel far. So carve your chicken, talk to someone else. Our words are getting friendly at the bar. Our legs are making finite parallels. And is it strange, this cluttered way of talking? I've always been a sucker for the charms of influence, benigner form of stalking. So many clothes you'd think us free from harms. But layers bring a fine heat, not a numbing. Now pass the wine and keep the good lines coming. It's a it's a, a it's a snappy, fun little poem in which we get to see Westian having fun, enjoying her banter with some guy at the bar, which is maybe a little bit flirty and a little bit uh, ambiguous. And uh, he he of course he's citing what's the what's the line? My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. That's the opening of uh, Ode to Nightingale. But this is what he's he's citing and. Uh, she says, no, no, that's not a nightingale, it's, that's a, a lark. It's a day's lark. And then she, she cuts him down further by saying, carve your chicken. And so the birds have descended in hierarchy from the sublime to the ridiculous. But on a dime, the, the, the tone of the poem is turned from uh, patronizing to flirtatious, to conspiratorial. And then she shifts the topic as if uh, become as if becoming self-conscious from there is something I think wonderfully true to life in nerdy flirtation that, that at the moment it becomes clear that there is genuine attraction <laughs> there's a she feels a need suddenly to talk about something else is it strange this cluttered way of talking to to become uh, to, ex to examine even the condition in which she is examining uh, their condition I've always been a sucker for the charms of influence, benigner form of stalking. There is, I think, it, it is, uh, I like this line, benigner form of stalking, because we seem to have made the turn already. In fact, if there's a, a moment in the poem that feels to me a little slightly false, at least in its pacing, it is that, that rapid, rapid turn in the second stanza. So carve your chicken, talk to someone else, our words are getting friendly at the bar. That's over the course of a line break. But it, it means that by the time we get into this third little quatrain, she's turning back toward darkness again. She said, I've always been a sucker for the charms. She's, she's uh, in, with, with a light tone and with a smirk and her tongue in cheek, she's saying, I've always loved influence. I've always been a sucker for the charms of influence. And then as an affectionate way of making fun of this, device of the men that she's attracted to, she she calls influence the benigner form of stalking. So there is a, you're never quite allowed to feel totally at home, totally comfortable in the romance of this poem. It is, after all, a reference. It's not entirely its own thing. But layers bring a fine heat. Of course, it's, it's cold. And so she says, uh, so many clothes you'd think us free from harms. It's cold outside, so they're, they're not scantily dressed. Their bodies are well covered up. But she says the layers, of course, layers is, you know, 
both the layers of allusion as well as the layers of clothing. And she says they bring a fine heat, not a numbing. Keats talks about this bird and the spell it's casting as being a, a kind of a relief, a, an escape from the world. The, you know, the dreary physical world of, of aging and pain and politics and history. And the nightingale is ageless. And while he's able to follow the song uh, in, in nature, he's able to live in this ageless, slightly numb, unreal state removed from all of the cares of you know, real life. So the poem is partly a poem uh, pursuing escape, pursuing a dream. The end, is, uh, the end of the poem is, um, fled is that music, do I wake or sleep? So it is almost, the whole, the whole poem is almost a kind of an, uh, a, a dream. So she says, the, the layer, but layers bring a fine heat, not a numbing. And the layers is a nice, uh, a nice play on words. And she sets up a really killer closing rhyme, a feminine rhyme there, not a numbing. And, and she's also and she's also responding to the the allusion to Keats earlier. He speaks of a drowsy numbness, and she says, layers bring a fine heat, not a numbing. And this is we're getting things are things are cooking here. Things are warming up. Things are happening. This is not numbing. We're not going numb. We're not departing from the world. But what's the last line? Now pass the wine and keep the good lines coming. That is to say, though she, she suggests for a moment that this is not numbing, this is not escape, this is not unreality, what she really wants is just to get a little bit drunker and to let the banter carry on, never quite to leave this state of flirtatious potential. It's, uh, it's a poem about enjoying life, getting drunk in a bar and flirting with a stranger and talking about poetry. There's also a little bit of a poem about fleeing from life. I did though, you know, the first time I read this poem, I, I really only saw Keats, but I don't know if I'd just gotten older and sadder, but now when I read it, I, I can't help also, but also hear the, the William Johnson translation of uh, the Heraclitus elegy. It's this tiny elegy to a, uh, a Greek elegy to a, a poet named Heraclitus, not the philosopher. And the, 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 the poet who wrote the elegy and the poet Heraclitus, all, all of this is all lost except for this little fragment. And this fragment would be lost to contemporary literature were it not for William Corey's really wonderful 19th century translation of it into just eight little lines. Here, I'll just read it to you quickly so you have it in your head. They told me, Heraclitus, they told me you were dead. They brought me bitter news to hear and bitter tears to shed. I wept as I remembered how often you and I had tired the sun with talking and sent him down the sky. And now that thou art lying, my dear old carrion guest, a handful of gray ashes long, long ago at rest, Still are thy pleasant voices, thy nightingales awake. For death he taketh all away, but them he cannot take. This is a really a poet's elegy to another poet, uh, which is largely about shop talk. It's largely about talking about poems, reading poems, talking about poems, staying up all night, 
and the nightingales that he refers to here, we don't have the book. The book is lost, but we know that there was a book that Heraclitus, the poet, the dead poet in this poem, his book, his one book was called Nightingales. We know that. And what his friend here suggests is that even though you're dead, your poems, the nightingales, will continue to sing, just like Keats's nightingale, which is immortal. He says the same, he hears the same nightingale that every emperor and clown and Ruth and everyone throughout history has heard. Nightingale doesn't age. And the poet here suggests that Heraclitus nightingales, the poems will not age either. The poems will live on. Of course, in this case, he was wrong. But at least in, uh, at least for now, we have Rachel Wetstein's poems. I'm just gonna uh, quickly read her poem one more time and then say goodnight. So this is Nightingales by Rachel Wetstein. Yes, I know what it's from, and so do you. When after some bird makes a sound outside, you speak of grousy numbness, and I shoo the thought away and claim the thing that cried is day's lark, warming up to travel far. So carve your chicken, talk to someone else. Our words are getting friendly at the bar. Our legs are making finite parallels. And is it strange? this cluttered way of talking. I've always been a sucker for the charms of influence, benigner form of stalking. So many clothes you'd think us free from harms. But layers bring a fine heat, not a numbing. Now pass the wine and keep the good lines coming. That was Nightingales by Rachel Wetstein, and this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you as always, for listening, you can reach me with questions, comments, complaints, and anything else at sleericketts at gmail.com. With any luck, I will be speaking with you again very soon. Until then.